Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. On our episode this week, we're delighted to share with you a talk from our Pastoral Refreshment Conference archive. This is a talk from 2014 by Mike Reeves, where he spoke to us on Hebrews 1 and 2. As the audio was recorded live at the event, it isn't perhaps as high quality as we would usually bring you on the podcast. However, we would encourage you to bear with the quality as the message contained within is a real encouragement for us as we walk with the Lord. Here's today's episode. Good afternoon, everyone. It's um, a place I've um, longed to be at for a few years. I've heard so many good things about the Pastoral Refreshment Conference. It's an absolute delight to be here. And uh, lovely to see some old faces I know and some new faces I don't. We're going to be uh, looking at uh, Hebrews 1 now. And uh, before we do that, let's pray. Our dear Abba, oh, thank you that we can call you that. We who are so cold-hearted, so wrapped up in ourselves, we fail you every day, and yet because of Jesus, we can approach you now and say, Abba, Father, we want to see Jesus. We want to see him more clearly, to know his all-sufficiency for where each one of us is at now. And so, Father, by your Spirit, would you minister to each one of us where we're at, that we might see how Jesus is a stronghold, a spring of life, a balm, a comfort, a friend, a friend to us all where we're at. And so may we leave with greater joy in him heartfelt, truth-led, deep joy in him, because we want him glorified, his lovely name glorified in our lives. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Towards the end of his life, having lost ten children, harassed by the government, pushed into obscurity and social exile, arrested for simply trying to pastor his people in England, John Owen wrote these words. He said, after all that, a due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life, says a man who's lost ten kids. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above even the loss of kids. It is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave us. A due contemplation of the glory of Christ. That was Owen's effective comfort. Now, I don't know where you're at right now. 
People will be coming from all sorts of different places right now. I don't know if you're feeling slightly battered and bruised, like Owen. But that is my aim for our time together. We're going to be looking at Hebrews, particularly Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the aim is quite simply that, to fill our vision with the glory of Christ. To see how Christ comforts and refreshes the people he so loves. Now, first, we do this because Jesus Christ is, according to Paul, the mystery of godliness. Knowing Jesus is the secret to, or mystery of, it's the same word, is the secret to Christian health. Jesus is the bottomless spring of life, comfort, and joy. And before we ever talk about our leadership, before we talk about leading spiritually fresh churches, we must be refreshed in Christ ourselves. And then we will find that the joy of the Lord is our strength, truly. And out of that, we'll go out and be leaders. And can I have a little sidebar for a moment there? Can we talk about joy? For a moment. I take it that joy is not one of those added bonuses in the Christian life that you can take or leave. It doesn't really matter. It's rather nice if you can have the time for it. It's like going to the cinema. No, I take it joy is essential for Christian health and growth. Rejoice in the Lord always says, suffering in present Paul. Joy is essential. We were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if we are not entering into the joy of our master, we are not entering into the new life for which we've been saved. Joy, is why it's so life-changing, is associated in scripture with humility with letting go of the shackles of self, with abandoning our own godhood to enjoy his. And joy always comes by encountering beauty. Have you noticed that? Whether you're talking about the smell of a rose, a beautiful dawn, a Mozart concerto, I'm slightly biased there. Joy comes through encountering beauty. And the richest and deepest beauty, the source of it all, is to be found in Christ. That dawn, that rose, that concerto, anything beautiful in it, is a reflection of his artistry, his character. We want to encounter him and so find deeper joy in him. And that's why I talk about filling our vision with Christ. Because this isn't quite so much getting your theology right. Now, I'm a theologian. And I really care about getting your theology right. But filling our vision with Christ isn't just about getting our theology right. Because you can be absolutely creedally orthodox 
and find that your vision is filled with a hundred other things. You can find that your vision for all your orthodoxy is actually filled by your own glory, is filled by your own worries. You can even teach others of the beauty of Christ and functionally you don't feed on that yourself. You feed on what other people think about your leadership. Even when you're teaching it to others. Here I stand ready to be condemned. Another reason I want us to spend time contemplating Christ is because, oh, it is so easy in Christian leadership to confuse Christ with Christian problems that we face. That just in Christian leadership, I face all sorts of problems. Life problems, church problems, people problems. And it's so easy to confuse Christ with them. And so what I do is just fed up with or beaten down by the sheer weight of problems hitting me every day. I can want to run from him into television, booze, the internet, really because what I'm wanting to do is run from that whole Christ-associated area of problems. Very understandable. We need to therefore be very clear in distinguishing between Christ, the solution, and Christian problems. So that as we deal with the weight of those problems, we don't run from him, but turn to him as a real stronghold, a real spring of life in all that. So for our joy, so that we don't run from him. And here's my last reason. In Christian leadership, it is particularly easy to fall into hypocritical professionalism. That's why I want us to contemplate Christ. And here's, here's how it works for me. See, for me, and I'm sure it's the same for you, the diary simply fills up with Christian things. Right? So I find it's in the diary next week. I'm going to preach. I'm going to go to that prayer meeting. I'm going to lead that Bible study. Most of that, I'm going to be up the front on display for people to see me. And it's there in the diary. So I'm going to do that unless I'm ill. I'm going to, I'll probably do it even so, but I, I, I'm just going to do that whether I'm spiritually ill or not. Because it's just there in the diary. And how easy that you just plod on through it. Keep doing those Christian things. And you find it, it can take just a long time before you actually wake up to what's just happened. You are walking very fast towards hypocrisy. And you find that Christ has become your trade and you are selling him to others and not enjoying him yourself. That's a, a unique and very pressing danger for those in Christian leadership. And so we must look to him afresh and find fresh Delight in him. Freshly find him captivating. As he truly is. We don't have to dress him up to see him as that. 
seem as he is, for he is so captivating. So to Hebrews, to Hebrews, which in many ways is all about saying, don't look elsewhere. Don't trust in ceremonies. Don't look back. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Do you mind if just reading these words, can we stand because they're so good? Can I just read them? Just these first couple of verses, they're so good. So I've got the ESV, I hope that's, that's okay. I heard a different version then, but we probably got all sorts of versions. Here we go. Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, so all these prophets use types, priests, sacrifices, all testifying to Christ, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Wasn't that worth standing for? Yeah, you can, you can sit down. It is all about the sun. It's all about the sun. All of scripture, he's the point, he's the center, he's the cornerstone. He is the jewel in the crown of scripture and our faith. And the first thing that Hebrews wants us to know about him is that he is the heir of all things, the creator. I don't think that's necessarily the most important thing to be said about him. But it's good to say first in that it frames our thinking well. Because as we start thinking about Christ, we can be clear, we are not talking about our little hobby horse. Now, given the world's almost complete disregard of us, it is very easy to find that message slip into our subconscious that Jesus is just my bag, just my hobby horse. For all that we affirm the deity of Christ, there's a media avalanche that we face that impresses on us that Christ is functionally irrelevant. Certainly, that you can have, that you can have life. You can have a lot of life without Jesus. And so surely Jesus, if anything, at best, is an optional smear, a spread of your choice to go on top of real life. And so I think the way it works is we, in an environment like this, or on a Sunday, we sing of Christ, and there, in that Christian atmosphere, in the Christian ghetto, it's true. But then you find you step outside, and you walk home, And out there, not surrounded by Christians, it really doesn't feel like this is Christ's world. Out there, you walk home through the streets, you see the pubs, you see the people on the streets, and it feels like, I've got this Christian thing going on, but there is real life out there. And Christ doesn't necessarily inform all that, the structure of reality. And the whole weight of our culture serves to reduce Jesus to being this optional package, to put it strongly, an imaginary friend for sadhus. 
That has got to be a fat leech on Christian vitality. If ever you even... Of course, all of us know that's not true, but it's so easy for that to be there in the subconscious. Here, as we talk about the gospel, true. Out there, does Christ have anything to do with that tree, that field, those people in the pub over there? It's it's that level of Christ's relevance. And if Jesus is just our chosen little plaything, then why on earth do we bust our guts out trying to bring him into people's lives? And so if that message seeps into our subconscious, it saps our vitality very seriously. And so before we go too far, wonderfully, Hebrews shows us we are talking about no piffling little Christlet. No, we are dealing with the one through whom all things were made, the heir of all things, the one who upholds and sustains the universe by the word of his power. Uh, I love something Martin Luther said. He was commenting on Genesis 2, verse 1. Do you remember Genesis 2, verse 1? And the heavens and the earth were filled, and all the host that was in them, in some translations. That word host, what do various other translations have instead of host? Can you think? All the host of them, all that filled them, that sort of thing. But the word host there is a word for an army. All the army that is in the heavens and the earth. And Luther says this, God has created all these creatures to be in active military service, to fight for us against the devil. Wow. Cool. It is the the skies, the trees, the fields do not proclaim some Christless neutral reality, leaving us to play our religious games, tacking Christ on. No, bearing the marks of his artistry, held together only in him. They are his craftsmanship and they cannot but display his glory. He is the Lord over all, and so his character is so written into the fabric and fibre of reality that you cannot even think against Christ without thinking against logic and descending into folly. You can't do it. Now, I need to know that. When the world marginalizes me and makes my life out to be pointless, makes this message of the glory of Christ out to be an option you can choose if you're just weak, I need to know that, that I know the most magnificent Christ. He is the creator of all things, and that gives me strength. Then there is this Stunning phrase in verse 3. I, I kind of want you to stand for this, but don't worry, I'm not going to do it again. The, the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Or as Revelation puts it, he is God's amen. Isn't that wonderful? Now, to get what that means, just think about Jesus for a moment. Think what Jesus was like. You read the Gospels, and you see, here was a man with 
towering charisma, overflowing with life. Loaves and fishes, health, healing, all, all abounding in his presence. So compelling was he that crowds flock to come to hear him, just some just to touch him. Rich and poor, men, women, old, young, mad, leprous, they all come. And the dirty and the despised they find in his pure presence Feel what this means if you've ever felt dirty and despised. The dirty and despised see that they matter to him. What a person. His friends found that as the Son of Man came eating and drinking, being with him was like being with the bridegroom at his wedding. Robert Law wrote, The blessings of the divine kingdom he was bringing to men, he could compare to nothing so much as the festive joys of marriage. Himself and his disciples were like a wedding party. He was the bridegroom whose joy overflows into the hearts of his friends, turning fasting into feasting. That's what Jesus does. Turning fasting into feasting, not stripping away the good, but turning fasting to feasting. And get this, Law writes, even at the last, on the verge of Gethsemane in sight of Calvary, he still speaks of his joy. He is the Lord of joy, and his crowning desire for his servants is that they may enter into the joy of their Lord and have it fulfilled in them. And yet, Jesus is the man of sorrows. And it is because he is the man of sorrows that his joy is so precious a legacy, so strong an anchor for our souls. Yes, in Jesus, you see, is a man who bore a world of pain and yet abounded with joy. In Jesus, you see, a huge heart. He hated evil. He felt for the needy. He loved God and he loved people in real, tangible, beautiful, warming, affecting ways. And the wonder of it is this. That is the life of God seen in the flesh. Right there. For right there in that beautiful person of Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. That's what he's like. Now, if that's who Jesus is, then there is no God in heaven who is unlike Jesus. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he is God from God. Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. You see him, you see what God is truly like. And so, we can get rid of that horrid, sly idea that slinks into my subconscious every morning when I try to pray that behind Jesus is some other kind of God. One who is thinner on compassion and grace. There cannot be 
There cannot be such a God. For Jesus is the word, the bright radiance of his father's glory, the the glow, the, the shining out of who his father is. The old Puritan preacher from London, Stephen Charnock, once said this about God. I wonder if you would say something like this. Tell me about God. Charnock said, is not God the father of lights, the supreme truth, the most delectable, desirable object? Is he not light without darkness, love without unkindness, goodness without evil, purity without filth, All excellency to please, without a spot to distaste, are not all other things infinitely short of him? More below him than a cab of dung is below the glory of the sun. Can you say that about what pleases you most on earth? That thing that enthralls me is more below him than a cap of dung is below the glory of the sun? Is he that much more worthy to be treasured than all the beautiful things, and there are many beautiful, good things on the earth? Is he really that much better? Now, talk about an enviable delight if you can have it. You listen to Charnock, and you think, here's... A man whose very thought of God brings rhapsodies of joy. He seems to carry the sunshine with him. He's got a real core of comfort. So whence such gladness in God? Where does it come from? Charnock is absolutely explicit. He says true knowledge of the living God is found in and through Christ. But what we see in Christ is so beautiful, it can make the sad sing for joy and the dead spring to life. He says, nothing of God looks terrible in Christ to a believer. The sun is risen, shadows are vanished, God walks upon the battlements of love, Justice has left its sting in a saviour's side. The law is disarmed, weapons out of his hand. His bosom is open, his bowels yearn, his heart pants. Sweetness and love is in all his carriage, and this is life eternal. To know God believingly in the glories of his mercy, grace and justice in Jesus Christ. In Christ... We exchange darkness for light as we think of God. Because Jesus, the bright radiance of his Father's glory, shows us an unsurpassably desirable God. Kind God, who is against all that is wrong. A God who thaws us. And For me, this is right at the heart of my daily wrestle in prayer. I find this is what's going on as I seek to pray, whether I win or lose in my battle to pray in the mornings. I find this is really the heart of what's going on. If I'm not resolutely Christ-centered in my thoughts about God, 
then if I'm not resolutely Christ-centered, then my thoughts about God strangle my prayer life. Right? So it's either I work to be Christ-centered, or my prayer life becomes very formulaic. Bluntly, because if God is not like Christ, then I don't want to pray to him. And I fear whether I can or not. Would he listen to me, given what a failure I am? But if God is like Jesus, ah, that really changes things. Because I, I wake up in the morning, and the first thing I know is not Jesus' glory, but my failure, my own cold-heartedness. That's what I wake up with. So I wake up in the morning, and I feel, wow. Naturally, I just know myself to be a sinner. Cold-hearted. That's where I'm sort of wired to start with. And so it makes all the difference to me to think, well, if God is like Christ, well, though vile like the dying thief, I can cry, remember me to this one, because I know how he'll react. And though I'm very spiritually leprous and lame, I know what he's, he does. I know how he is towards those who are like that, who come to him and cry for help. I can go to a God like him, the beautiful radiance of the Most High, seated now at his right hand for us. The great creator, the glory of his father. And the rest of Hebrews 1 is really devoted to showing that he is superior to the angels. He is better. He is better than any angel. He is better than anything. I think this would be worth thinking through if you could have the moment to do it while here. Think through while here what it is that you most treasure besides Christ. What is it you most treasure? And think through, honestly, are you able to see how Christ is better than that thing? Are you able to do that? Because if you honestly can't see that Christ is better than that thing you treasure, it doesn't matter what it is. Whether it's that hobby, whether it's your own glory, whether it's ministry, it doesn't matter what it is. If you can't see that Christ is better, more desirable than that, for your health and joy, address that. For Christ truly is better, and you need your eyes open to see how, and that will be a profound moment of deliverance from slavery to that thing. John Newton was talking about this moment in Hebrews to a friend, and he compared Christ to the angels and said this, Look unto him now, believer. Look unto him as he now reigns in glory. He is possessed of all power in heaven and in earth. Look unto him now, with thousands upon thousands of saints and angels worshipping before him, tens thousands times ten thousand ministering unto him. 
Look unto him. Do you see him? Then he says, compare your sins with his blood. Compare your faults with his fullness. Compare your unbelief with his almighty faithfulness. Compare your weakness with his strength. Compare your inconstancy with his everlasting love. And Newton says, if the Lord opens the eyes of your understanding, you would be astonished at the comparison. Isn't that beautiful to know? I'm so full of faults, so weak, so fickle. But his love, his fullness eclipses my weakness. In him I find one who is so much better. In Christ we have a fullness that dwarfs our weakness and frailty. We have a haven for the burnt out, for the proud, for those who've gone cold. If that's you. He is better. But here's the surprise. Here I think is really not what we'd expect at all. Here's the question. What precisely is better than all things? What is better even than heavenly spirits? Now, what do you think you would say is better than angels, better than heavenly spirits? I think left to ourselves, we'd say something like a monarch, a king over all. That's not quite the answer Hebrews gives us. It's not just that he's bigger than all the rest, more powerful than the angels. The one who is better than them, not simply more powerful, more excellent in every way, is called the Son. The one compared to the angels is a Son. Verse 5. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Again, I'll be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Again, when he brings his firstborn son into the world, he says that all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A father with his son. That is the highest, most beautiful being in reality. A father with his son. And it is why the eternal sonship of Christ was so hard fought for by the church in the early centuries after the New Testament. Because the fact that the one who is higher than all, who is better than the angels, the fact that he is a son, changes every thought we would have about God. Now, Marcus, when he um, was briefing me about this, he was saying, now, Mike, we don't want a theological lecture. This is preaching for pastoral refreshment. He's saying that to a theologian, but the theologian bursts out every now and again. So can I give you one minute? Is that right? It won't be long, just one minute. Let me tell you about this fight. Because it's so genuinely, deeply refreshing. (laughs) It is. Okay, Arius was the one who in the 4th century led the charge against belief in the eternal Son of God. According to Arius, God is not eternally a father loving his son. 
God is, well, a, a, an eternal being who at some point decided to have a creation, but he thought, I don't want to get my hands dirty. Ugh. And so what he did is he created this son who could do the dirty work for him. Right? So it's not a father eternally loving a son. It's God who says, I'll have a creation for some reason, and I'll get this one to do the whole creating thing for me. Okay, Maris, you're allowed to say such things. But the effect it had was profound. For it meant that no longer is a God here. No longer is this God a father truly loving his son. Now the son is just a hired workman. And if the Bible ever talks about the father's pleasure in him, Arius said, it can only be because he's earned it. He has earned his father's approval through doing a good job. And that presumably, is how to get in with the God who is simply the employer. But this is no fatherly God of true relationships and heartfelt kindness. Men like Athanasius believed that what Arius had unwittingly done was to throw away the God of love and the gospel of grace in exchange for a steely idol who lacked any real conception of kindness. Because he'd thrown away the eternal son. And thus the Christian church gathered at Nicaea in 325 and agreed forever to confess the son is of one being with the father. God isn't using him as hired help. That's not the kind of God he is. And He isn't using God to get heavenly glory. He's already had it for eternity. He's got nothing to earn. He is the eternally beloved one. The one who shows that there is a most loving father on the throne of heaven. One who can share with us more than a business arrangement with God. Sonship. That's why having an eternal son on the throne of heaven is so beautiful. He reveals to us a loving father in heaven. He reveals to us a totally different sort of salvation. Not the employer who waits to see if you've done well enough, but a kind father who loves a son, who invites us into that relationship. What these... these Theologians, yes, theologians were seeing was that our salvation is only as good as it is because Christ is who he is. And if you make Christ less, you make the gospel less. Without an eternal son, you have no free access to a fatherly God to know him as beloved children. That's gone. Now on the throne of the universe, the creator all-powerful is one who reveals the heart of a father to us. A kind father. He's always abounded in love to his son. 
the one who's on the throne of the universe, is one who is so delightful that for eternity he's captivated the heart and mind of his father. On the throne of the universe is the one Athanasius called the father's everything. There is nothing more precious to the Father than him, because there is nothing better than him. In every way, in every situation. And this is what we were made for. To find our refreshment and joy where God always has in Christ. To find a delight that is so great, it can satisfy a divine heart. And so if you ever feel, I think once I was delighted by Christ, but I think I've kind of reached my limit there. There is no limit. You just need to fill your vision with who Christ is. You need to press in to see him afresh. For he is so delightful, he can satisfy God's heart. To find a delight so great, he is the very great reward of the gospel. He is the one who is the treasure of the Father, all sufficient for us wherever we are at, shared with us in pure grace. Can I finish with some words John Newton wrote to a friend of his? Because this is really what I want to say to you. This is really what I want the next couple of days to be about. John Newton, in a private letter to a friend, said this. He said, and his letters were so often like this. He said, friend, let me commend you and yours to the grace and care of our Lord Jesus. They that dwell under the shadow of his wing shall be safe. His service is perfect freedom. In his favor is life. May his name be ever precious to your heart. And may you have such increasing knowledge of his person, his character, that beholding his glory in the gospel, you may be changed into his image. You may drink in his spirit and be conformed to him. For, friend, he said, to view him by faith, view him living Dying, rising, reigning, interceding, governing now for us. That will enable us to bear any cross, to endure all opposition, to withstand temptation, and to run in the way of his commands with an enlarged heart. And yet a little while, And he will put an end to our conflicts and fears. He will take us home to be with him forever. Thus we shall be made more than conquerors. And in the end, brothers and sisters, in the end, obtain the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let's pray for that now.
Father, we simply couldn't make up your glory. It is so surpassing, so beyond us, so captivating. Father, we praise you for Jesus. And we long now, tonight, tomorrow, to press in to know Jesus better. That gazing on him, we might find ourselves transformed into his kind, generous image. To find that he is more captivating and more desirable than all those things that enslave our hearts. And so I pray for each one of us. May we find Jesus more delightful than our sin, than our false idols, and so walk away from them freely. May we, in Jesus, looking to him, find liberation. And we ask this so that your name might be glorified as people see the healing Jesus brings to real lives. The people may see that Jesus makes proud, prickly, selfish fools into kind, delightful, warm and generous saints. For his glory and in his beautiful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving a review on your podcast app to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. You'll find us on any major social media platform at Living Leaders or visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll also find more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. God bless.